This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. Reverberations. Produced by Alan Meany. Episode 1. Abby Oliveira. Elbowing all the other cows out the road. You know, she didn't have enough grass in her field. They don't even want to eat the grass, they just want to come up and nose. I've been performing on the performance poetry circuit for the past 10 years, you know, and I got into it quite by accident. I was, uh, I just moved to the city and I was doing my six months on the dole. They used to make you do this thing where you, I can't even remember what it was called now, but you had to do six months. Uh, It was kind of like work experience and I was lucky enough to get put into one of the local community centres. They were running a festival and part of the festival had a literary element to it and I was helping organise that and through that I met another poet who asked if I wanted to join a a group. She had an idea for women to join together and do performance poetry together and so I did and that's how it all started and the rest is quite serendipitous as well. So yeah, I've been, uh, it was one of those things in life where you just sort of got carried off in a direction which was the direction you needed to be going in but you just didn't see it coming kind of thing. I had always written, always, since I was a kid, you know, but I just hadn't done much putting it out there. So putting it out there was a, well, it was an experience because for a start, you know, I didn't, at that time it was kind of offbeat to be doing performance poetry around this area at least, you know. And I kind of didn't expect that it would get the reaction that it did, and it did, and people loved it, and and it was a real surprise, you know. And then the next thing, we were travelling all over the country, doing gigs and meeting other poets, and it's really the people that I've met and the places that I've gone in the past ten years because of doing poetry has been amazing. It's really, I really feel blessed, you know. I think 
whether you're uh, would consider yourself to be a spoken word, a performance poet, or a page poet, you you have to you have to read or perform your work well so that it so that you're delivering it to the audience in the best possible way. They're hearing the best of your work, and to me, it doesn't matter whether you do it with the page or without the page. It's a requirement of us all, you know. We all we spend hours writing these poems. And then uh, we don't want to go to an audience and, and not read them properly or in an engaging way, you know. But I suppose one thing that's definitely noticeably changed is, is the kind of subjects that compel me to write. A friend of mine did tell me a while ago that, you know, um, I love your stuff, Abby. Why are you always writing about things that annoy you? <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, actually... Why do I tend to write poems about the things that annoy me? I had just sort of lost sight of the things that that nurtured me and, and made me feel good, you know, in my poetry. So that I've definitely been more aware in the past four or five years of the type of energy I'm putting out there to an audience when I'm reading, you know. Ultimately, I just aim to uplift people, have people leaving my gigs feeling in some way uplifted, or that they've, they're thinking of things in a new way maybe that they hadn't thought of, of them before, you know. That's what I want to achieve. I in no way want the audience to leave just feeling angry <laughs> or like they want to fight someone, you know. So subjects I would cover would be politics. I would cover sort of society, social issues. I write about, obviously, my own personal experiences of, of racism. I write about nature a lot. I do write a lot about nature because I spend a lot of time in nature. And I'm a great, great believer in, in the therapeutic and health benefits of nature, you know. So those would be my, the subjects that really rile me up, that get me going, like a little bit of a fire in me, you know. Well, do you know, I have to say, a lot of people do say, OK, I don't get poetry, I don't like poetry, but yet and all, I notice that people who might ordinarily say that they just don't like poetry, it's a thing that they turn to when they're going through a rough time in their lives. You know, like when somebody dies or just when they're experiencing hardship, they might resonate with poetry or certain types of poetry a lot more, you know, even when look at the death pages in the paper. The death pages in the paper are people filled with people writing rhyming couplet poems, dedications to loved ones, you know. So I think it's just always down to a matter of when it resonates. And it doesn't always resonate, you know. I often run uh, poetry classes, you know, performance poetry and writing poetry workshops, and I have had all types of people in those workshops, all ages, from children way up to the elderly, women, men, actually not so many men, which is odd because the performance poetry circuit in general, there's a lot of men in it, but in the classes, women tend to present more than men. Now in Derry, one way that I've definitely seen the poetry classes helping is with people who had a very, very hard time in school, they were taught by nuns, Christian brothers, who really destroyed their confidence. 
So I've had a lot of women in particular come into my class and for the first few classes, you know, they're nervous. They don't want to read anything out that they've written. They still feel a bit, a bit silly. Like that, that, um, that damage in a sense is still there from all those years ago when they were getting taught by the nuns. So therapeutically in that sense, it's helped them to find that bit of confidence again to a certain degree, you know? For me personally, it has helped no end. I find that, that the writing of poetry and the performing of poetry kind of has a similar, a similar effect on me that, that going and jumping in the sea does when I, when I really need some, some uh, natural therapy, you know? But look, I'm not saying I'm never going to be one of, one of those people who claim that, that to take yourself off out into the forest or to the seaside on a regular basis is is an apt replacement for for protesting for instance or for taking action in other ways but what it's really important for is helping to keep yourself on a bit of an even keel a little bit of help that you can give for yourself i stop and smell the roses a lot i stop and hug the trees i stop and lie in the grass and I am an absolute believer with all my heart that that is so therapeutically crucial for us all. waterfalls coming down. We've got some rocks here where I love to sit just under this canopy of trees. It's so, so peaceful here. And really, a, a good 20 minutes sitting here has set you up rightly for the day or the week, the month, whatever. Sometimes I even get into that water just to let it run round me. I know I sound dead like a hippie, but what can I say? My soul is a hippie. <laughs> it is a lover of the forest. I love these woods. Um, they say, in, Jap in Japan, in 1982, the government started this whole public health scheme. And it, it was called Shinrin-yoku. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But it simply means quiet contemplation around trees because it's been proven to be beneficial for your health. Reducing stress, blood pressure, depression, all that. But I really love that idea that the Japanese government rolled it out as a national health programme, you know? We could definitely do more of that here. It's not like we're uh, lacking trees or woodland or... I often don't take the time to stop. But I tend to suffer badly when I don't do that. This is what I like to call the steps that were made for giants. I mean, really. <laughs> How massive are these steps? Well, it tends to manifest itself in me and that I, I start having trouble sleeping, trouble concentrating, 
And all throughout the day, I feel very, very tired. That's how I know that it is that I'm not taking enough time just to have quiet, meditative time to myself. See what I mean? A lovely day like this, and we haven't seen another person out in this woods. As a storyteller as well, to walk through the woods, you see things like this where the roots of the tree are coming out from the cliff face there. Well, you know, all I see is dwellings. Dwellings for the fairy folk, dwellings for the creatures of the forest that we can't see with our naked eyes, faces in the trees. So I, I write the prose as well. In terms of storytelling, I do them mainly for children, you know. I like to try and encourage kids through the stories to to look at nature in a little bit of a different light, you know. Or even to imagine all the amazing things that might be going on you know, under that bush, in that undergrowth where it's a vast universe of... a vast world that we are not a part of, you know. down strangest experience of my life in this forest. <laughs> One of those experiences that is absolutely, it's kind of beyond words. I was walking, I'd gone out for a walk, come out for a walk with two friends and they were sort of dandering and I'd walked on ahead of them and I walked around a corner and there was this cave and I suddenly just, I had to stop, like stop and I couldn't and I was overcome, gripped by the most unbelievable feeling of terror. I have never felt terror like it. So there was this little sort of cave in the cliff face, just to my side, and there was nothing there. But I knew there was something there. And I couldn't move, I couldn't speak, I couldn't... Now, the only thing that sort of made... The only reason I'm telling you that, or anybody that, is because then at that point, my friend skipped around the corner and she went, Ah, bad energy off that cave. And she was really freaked out too, so whatever it was, she felt it. Now, there's no logical explanation for that. There never will be. But it was one of those things that make you wonder about, you know, what do you think you know in life for? Or the depth and breadth that life takes. Makes you wonder what's going on that you haven't got a clue about. Of course, maybe I was just taking some strange brain turn. But the fact that my friend felt it was the thing that that clinched it for me, you know. Well, you know, it was interesting because I'm really in, I'm really interested in all that subject, the folklore, the old stories of Ireland. Because I'm a storyteller, I do storytelling mostly for kids. As part of my work there, I started to read up on a lot of these things. You know, I've been out to some of the countryside villages and towns collecting stories from the older people, you know, their old folklore stories and the, about the women with the cures and this and that and that. And I was uh, researching Iceland's beliefs, because Iceland have very similar beliefs to Ireland, but the difference being 
that in Iceland, a policeman will stop and tell you his story about a really strange experience he had with wee folk. Whereas they say now, Ireland in general is a bit embarrassed and a bit ashamed about that. And even me, even I'm a bit embarrassed, thinking, oh, should I have told them about that story? About the... Oh! <laughs> As I say, it was just the strangest thing I have ever, ever experienced. And you know, I still feel to this day that whatever it was that I could feel, although I felt this absolutely paralyzing terror, I also kind of knew that whatever it was, because I'm calling it it, whatever it was, it meant me no harm. It simply needed to impress upon me very quickly, do not come any further, you know? Who knows? It's a mystery, as I say. like to work in such a way that in the first instance it flows out me then I leave it to rest then I go back and fix it and draft it and and, and do all that kind of stuff because um, sometimes it does not flow when it's not flowing then yeah I'm, I'm liable to just leave it till the time when it will it doesn't always flow and when it doesn't always flow I reckon that it's a sign that I'm trying to push push it too much you know but yeah I always do I always try and leave time between that initial outpouring of energy and the fixing because the, the initial outpouring of energy it, it doesn't bode well for editing a lot of the time you know yeah. it's uh how can I explain this it's like it's an energy it nearly feels like it takes over you in spite of you you know not in spite of you and despite you <laughs> so yeah I I do I feel I, I don't know how else to explain it it's just like an energy now it's an energy that I need to perform believe it or not I am not one of life's natural performers or lovers of the spotlight I need something that's kind of outside myself to get me on that stage in the first place and still get terrible nerves and feel sick and you know but yeah that that energy, whatever it is, helps me to get on stage, to keep writing, to keep performing, to keep practicing. So yeah, I, I can't give you any more of an explanation than that because it's a mystery even to me. <laughs> well, here is exactly what I do. I do deep breaths. I do um, a little bit of meditation, you know, and a, a little bit of a Tai Chi exercise that I was taught a few years ago. Just a quick one that's just designed to sort of ground your energy and ground you and I always call I always call on my granny and granddad they've died right but I always call on them to come to my gigs you know and, and my ancestors as well always do that quietly to myself there's a few times I've got up on the stage and said can we just hold on one minute till my granny and granddad gets here and people are like oh yeah grand sure granny and granddad say that's great and they're like, where are they? I'm like, oh, sorry, I meant to say they died. <laughs> That's what I do.
I needed to, I felt that my well had sort of run almost dry, my creative well within me had almost run dry. I needed to step back from it for a while to just give it time to refill itself, to not be worrying about it because when people are trying to book you for gigs and, and you're worried because you haven't got that much new material, which is something that poets do tend to worry about, I think, more than musicians, you know. It all just added to this feeling of stress and pressure that I was feeling around the writing of performance poetry and the performing of it. And I, I stopped having fun with it for a while. And that's never, never good for your creativity. I, I love... Um, my biggest influences would have been... would be, say, Saul Williams. I absolutely love uh, Andrea Gibson. I absolutely love the poet Audre Lorde. She was a black feminist radical poet back in the 60s, 70s, 80s. She's dead now. I, I could go on and on and on. I really could. Yeah, well, you, you know, I'm obviously highly influenced by people and very influenced by the people here. You know, I, I, I feel a real heart connection with the people here and it is the people that when I have these moments of thinking that perhaps it was a mistake to stay in this place, it's the people that keep me here. severe anxiety, severe stress, depression, who's come out to one of our many beautiful spaces, such as this forest, to try and recover for a bit, to try and get a little bit of headspace and, uh, and consider a position and consider, consider, get a little bit of space to consider all the positive things about this place when it's all the negative things that are being constantly, constantly uh, reinforced in your mind, you know, especially at the minute, given the political situation at the minute here, you know, all we're hearing is, you know, one wrong word in that boardroom over there in London, and it could bring the troubles back, which is probably a bit of hyperbole, really, when it comes down to it. But when you're hearing those things every day, it does kind of put you in a bit of a panic, especially when you're an artist, you know. Um, We've had our arts budget slashed severely this past few years, so you, you just get to wondering and panicking about staying. And really, it's about needing this kind of headspace and a quiet place to think straight about things. And the poem is really about the process of that. Many's the time I've run into this forest in a bad state, and by the time I've left, I've felt at least like, it's okay, I can cope, you know. I, I am tempted all the time. I am tempted all the time for myriad reasons. I, have, I know a lot of people who have already left. A lot of people that feel they can never come back here, but there's always a, a sort of a, 
a sadness, a sodad in them when they talk to you on the phone or... Now, there are at the same time those who say that they are never coming back here, that it was the best thing they ever did. They have their reasons and, you know, you could, who would blame them, you know? But yeah, I, when it comes down to it, I think I'm just, I have too much of a poet's heart to leave this place. And that sounds dead cheesy and dead touristy, but what can I do? <laughs> it's just me. <laughs> Yeah. That's the way I feel about this island in general. I think I would be happy anywhere on this island. Not just in the north here, but wherever. This is Reverberations, my name is Abby Oliveira, and this poem is called Patience. When the capstone crumbles, when birds are screams with wings in heaven, she rushes here to crash. To roar loose-lipped at the river without care of sinking ships down water. To drown the murmurs of her long-lost tribe, who gathered here on blue-bag nights to hide from tuneless flutes and bonfires. All now gone to Myanmar, Brighton, Berlin, New York, Sydney, all they ever asked is why stay. Why stay in a place you hardly dare name? When a slip of the tongue in a boardroom in London could set it all back decades, why stay? Where words are as incendiaries, our brother's blood is as hazardous waste than you are as a walking womb, why? Raise flowers in the attic, repeat, repeat entire, entire words because why? Write letter after letter to creationist ministers who will not see how by degrees the streets evolve without them anyway. It's said it'll take seven, seven generations, generations in a vacuum at least to kill the sting, to make this place half right again. And you, and you are, are getting old, dear friend. friend. Hide the bright, bright flee to Berlin. Berlin. Rain rattles its fingertips on the foliage, impatient of old stories. All these reasons to go sound like reasons to stay to our dark artist's heart. It is twenty miles, twenty years from here, discovering how going weak at the knees is not a metaphor. Early spring, a sun-sliced corridor, a crash into the blue eye early brown spring a sun-sliced corridor a crash into the blue eye brown nipple door north coast accents called her back from the rocks Belfast invited her to dance on narrow ground and all night cross community sketches make love before dawn forced everyone back into opposition 
Old trail talk, old town and mother tongues with sodad undertone. Sing drunk at the top of their lungs on the streets of strange, strange cities. Swear they'll never come back to this crack, and who'd blame them after all that? Not far away, St. Columns Park thrums to the pulse of Japanese drums. The Guildhall fountains are a playground for all colours of a vast spectrum. A rainbow flared stretches the entire length of Shipkey Street, thousands proud to carry its weight. And like some emerald-eyed tourist who came here for the poets, I'm too far gone and lost, she says, and I am here to test my faith. I am I here am to here test to my faith in this place I hardly dare to remain. When all the capstones crumble, when all the head's piece is as fragile shingle, where nothing roars louder than the waterfall of the patience it takes to alter a landscape. This programme was made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. Reverberations. Produced by Alan Meany. Episode 1. Abby Oliveira. <laughs>